Welcome to North Beats from North Beach podcast. I'm your host, Corey Luna. On today's episode, I speak with Mark Letzner of Electric Kitchen. We discuss his work with Serge Modular Music Systems. We talk about the live tour he did earlier this year on the East Coast. And we talk about the tracks that you'll hear later at the end of the episode on how he composed them. And before we get into the episode, a couple of announcements. Uh, every month, if you're here in the Bay Area, you can hear live electronic music. We've got resonant frequencies on the first Sunday of every month, resident on the second Tuesday of every month, and peaked on the third Wednesday of every month. Check out patreon.com for North Beats to contribute. And you can always find me at Corey Z. Luna on Instagram. Thanks so much for coming over and doing my podcast. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Be happy to. <laughs> good. How was lunch? Ah, oh, lunch was good, but you know what's what's wrong with green curry? Nothing ever. That's <laughs> it's right. Always always good. It's always the good choice. Can't mess it up. So, Mark, tell me a little bit about uh, tell me a little bit about Electric Kitchen. What's that? How does what does that uh, encompass entirely? So, over the last couple of years. Um, I had taken a very long hiatus from making music, and um, when I got back into making music, uh, I was just playing improv with some friends, and I was doing, then that group was kind of putting stuff together. And the long story short is, I ended up doing a whole variety of musical activities, and uh, we needed a name to put over it. <laughs> and so uh, that's that's where Electric Kitchen came from so that became the name but the project has grown from what was originally just the name of some music that a group of us were doing as improv to it's become sort of the overall project of all my musical activity so I, I put everything under under the electric kitchen label or name uh, as a place to hold it all there's um so it's not really an artist name it's more of I call it the sort of musical project name okay yeah similar to a label or a brand yeah, I okay. guess it's it's sort of um uh, you know, a little like a label or a publishing company or something like that. Okay. All right, very good. And because you know, because when I first started, when I first got to know you, mm -hmm. uh, maybe over a year ago now, um, you know, I knew you as performing as Electric Kitchen. Right. Right. So when I when I do my live performances uh, solo or uh, with improv groups, um, some members who I've done a bunch with, we generally perform under that as a name for the ensemble or for the group. Um, but uh, I've I've done some work with, um, like in one case, there's a musician in New Zealand I work with, and there's another musician and composer in San Francisco I work with. And uh, technically, those aren't the Electric Kitchen band or group, but they'll go on the Electric Kitchen website and they'll be, they'll be under, my activity will go there. I also have a bunch of stuff that I would consider sort of very different than the group or performance oriented work and i put that under electric kitchen as well okay makes sense great excuse me um and from there how do you go about uh publishing your work 
Oh, God, I wish I knew. <laughs> I, I mean, it's easy enough to get your music out on on you know all the streaming services. That's relatively straightforward. It's easy enough to get your music out. Uh, I put it out on Bandcamp as well. So my stuff is distributed out with uh, DistroKid to all the standard services. It's on Bandcamp, which is kind of my preferred way to for people to go find it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a bunch of stuff. Sometimes when there's accompanying video, I'll put a version out on YouTube as well. Um, I also put out a lot of experiments and smaller bits, and I like to put out um, clips from my weekly my weekly rehearsals and, and stuff. I put that out on both Instagram and Facebook. Um, so I kind of get it out there all those different ways. Um, I guess that's really all more distribution. I really have no idea how to actually publish it in the sense of make it widely viewable and available for people to find it. Like, you know, they can hear it if they know about it, but I have almost no idea how to get people to find it. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm perplexed about that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the background of, you mentioned a while ago that you mm -hmm. uh, worked with, uh, was it Serge? Serge, Serge Trepnin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and tell me, a little, tell me some history on that. Um, so uh, when I was in college, uh, which was, uh, let's just say it was before MIDI, <laughs> okay. um, I studied uh, with a composer, Ivan Trepnin, and I studied electronic music, uh, which is what my degree is in. Um, and it turns out that Ivan Trepnin is the brother of Serge Trepnin, and Serge is the creator of the Serge Modular Analog Synthesizer, um, which is, uh, I'd say, uh, enjoying a lovely resurgence pun intended, I guess, uh, <laughs> recently. Anyway, um, way back in the 80s, um, I was studying electronic music with Yvonne, and um, I spent a summer out here in California. I was on the East Coast where I had grown up and gone to school. So I came to California, and I spent a couple weeks at Karma, CCRMA, which is Stanford's computer music facility. I did a six-week fellowship there. And then I came up to San Francisco to spend time with Surge. And now at that time, Surge modular synthesizers were being made in a Victorian house on Heat Street, <laughs> um, which was amazing. And so um, uh, Surge welcomed me. I actually lived in his house. And uh, I didn't work on the Surge analog production, which was on the like middle two floors of the building. Um, because the, he had a full, he had a staff that built those things and one with him. But I was working with Serge on uh, two separate digital music hybrid projects, uh, neither of which in the end ever saw the light of day, sadly. But we, oh. I spent, uh, I spent another six weeks of that summer, the other half of that summer, working directly with Serge on figuring out digital control of various analog circuits and writing a lot of software to run it. And um, it was a really interesting, wonderful time. I've, and unfortunately, um, Unfortunately, Ivan has passed, but uh, I remain friends with Serge to this day, which is really oh. lovely. Is he still in the Bay Area? Oh, no, no. He's no. in France. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. They were originally from France. So. Okay. <laughs> I did not know that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's quite an experience. Uh, yeah. No, it was uh, it, it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> were you, did you, uh, do you still have any uh, modules from then? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um Actually, at that time, I was in college, and I, as much as I loved them, I couldn't actually afford them, right? <laughs> because even then, they were expensive. Um, and so a couple years later, when I moved to California for my first job, and I had finally gained some capital uh, saved up, I actually went back to Surge and was like, okay, I'm ready. And so I, <laughs> I ordered my Surge. At that time, uh, 
you used to, uh, you picked which modules you wanted out of the catalog and you assembled them into what racks you wanted. And then they custom built you a front panel just for that. And so, wow. uh, um, and in my case, I bought them all as kits because you could even back then, this was like 1989, maybe, um, you could buy them as kits as an option. And so uh, they made you custom front panels and then they sent you all the kits. <laughs> and I spent probably four months soldering the thing together. Wow. And uh, yeah, no, I still have it. So I have a three rack surge wow. um, that, that I built from, from the era, you know, delivered directly from Surge himself. <laughs> That's amazing. That's something that I, I would so, I would love to hear someday. Oh, uh, there are some recordings of it online. I, I play it. Yeah. Um, I don't play it a lot these days, uh, mostly because I'm working on different styles of music and it's not necessarily amenable to most of my projects, but occasionally I do. So uh, I, I I think there are two search pieces that are that are out there from the last year that I've done. Excellent. So yeah, there was one from just this past uh, spring. So now, so uh, last month you you and uh, uh, Lachlan Fletcher played mm -hmm. at Peaked. Yes. And Lachlan had a surge. Yes. What what version of surge was that? Uh, I believe his version is what's called. I think what he has is Eurosurge. I'm not sure exactly which version. So, um, surge modules have so, sort of interesting sort of lore and evolution. Um, after so when surge originally. I mean, you can find some of this on the online if you want a deeper history, but very briefly, um, Serge developed them when he was at CalArts and they were designed very much as uh, to be kits and to be an affordable synthesizer. I think at one point he was using the term the people synthesizer. Um, <laughs> and um, then through uh, the 80s, uh, Serge was both manufacturing them, both selling them as completed units and as kits. You could buy them either way. And then at some point, Serge uh, decided it was time to move on and he uh, passed on, or I, I don't know the business arrangements, but there was another company called STS that was manufacturing or making them in Oakland, uh, as well as repairing them and as well as developing a few new modules. And so there's the STS era. And then this thing happened where no one paid any attention to analog modular at all. I, I can remember the, you know, it was like, Somewhere in the you know mid '90s or late '90s, you know, until mm -hmm. God, probably about 2010, you know, no one paid any attention to analog modular, and I would occasionally haul this thing out, and people were like, "What is that dinosaur you've got there?" <laughs> so nothing happened. Um, but meanwhile, people, a few people, began to reverse engineer circuits and and build kits or equivalent circuits, and so now there's about five or six different uh, places where you can get surge modules although not technically from surge himself um you know where people have reproduced the circuits or reproduced the circuits with modern available electronics sometimes people have done them in euro rack format some of them have done them in um in still banana format but in, in a smaller case size there's a bunch of varieties and then there's and now there's a few companies actually going at it like random random source is the big one wow. one of the two so um so there's a bunch of varieties um you know, but but all of them are trying to keep to this. I mean, surge modules have a somewhat different philosophy than others, and and so they they're all sort of working within that sensibility. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, just do it. It's fine. <laughs> Good boy. And was there? I'm curious. Was there any? Um, what was it like living at the the surge house on Hate Street? Um, it was great. I mean, it was. Um, 
it was an environment in which you know everyone was you know turning you know like living their passion i know that sounds like a really quaint phrase to say um but it's true i mean you know we we enjoyed you know folks i mean not everyone who worked there lived there 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 was a few people who did actually on the ground floor um so you know but um basically there was this crazy thing we were all passionate about making electronic music with uh, you know these strange devices and people were soldering them and enjoying them so i i guess it it felt like um, we were all involved in this great conspiracy, which we enjoyed greatly. <laughs> Weird place. Um, Serge himself is just a wonderful, delightful person. Um, and so he was, uh, I had a great time with him. So it was a lot of fun. They had a huge white dog that shed everywhere. There was white dog hair everywhere. <laughs> like a Samoyed or like a... Yeah, some something like that. giant Samoyed or something. It was huge. <laughs> Very nice. Now, um... So t tell me a little bit about the music you were making back then. It was very different um, than what I do now. Um, so for the rest of us, as I said, I, was, I started studying electronic music before the era of MIDI. Um, and so uh, I was studying mostly on Surge, uh, although I had experience in both Buchla's and Moog as well. But these, these are the early patchable Moogs, not the keyboard Moogs. Um, and doing, you know, tape work, you know, cutting and splicing tape and building physical tape loops to, to get, you know, looping to happen. Um, and um, I was very interested in how I could, um, I wanted to augment the analog systems with, with a, a more complex way of controlling them. Uh, and I wanted to use a computer to do that. Uh, but at the time there was no MIDI. Um, and so what I ended up doing was uh, working with uh, Dave Wilson, who uh, did some work with Surge as well, to build a interface between an Apple II, <laughs> now you know what era we're talking about, an Apple II computer and the Surge. And so I had control voltages in both directions that I could send, and I had triggers in both directions. And what I would do is I would write a lot of very algorithmic music on the Apple II that would generate sequences of, um, it had a tone generator card as well. So it could generate, you know, it had some oscillators and it had control voltages and pulses. And then I would send all that to the surge where I would then further process uh, what was going on or have the computer, I wouldn't say sequence because this is live algorithmic music where the computer is constantly recomputing what to do next based on some algorithm. So, uh, you know, it's not sequenced in the sense that it's pre-written. Um, and so I would use that as kind of a giant augmented instrument. <laughs> uh, like there's a piece I wrote called Bounce, not very uh, creative name, in which my only input to the system was a telegraph key. Um, and so I would play a telegraph key into rhythmically into the computer and the computer would interpret that and generate a whole series of tones and control voltages and, and would control the surge and then the surge had this giant patch on it and that's, that's what you heard. Um, so I was doing a lot of these uh, algorithmic pieces. There was a piece based on the moon, on the the motions of the moons of Mars, and there was a piece based on neural networks, and a whole variety of them. Um, and again, they basically they they worked with what I wanted to have happen. Um, even back then, I liked playing live, or I wanted things to be live performed versus tape. Um, and uh, you know, none of us had computers powerful enough to to actually compute audio in real time. Um, 
So that was uh, that wasn't an option. <laughs> so I, I did these sort of augmented control pieces. Wow. And we were, you were performing them live. Yeah, yeah. So I performed them live in Boston. Wow. <laughs> okay, Jesus. Did you need like a van to carry all this equipment or did it fit into a car? Oh yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it was insane. I'm imagining it. It's like just from the, you know, the era I'd imagine you need a van for all that stuff. Well, I don't know if you need a van, but I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I was carrying an Apple II computer and this giant interface card and these sort of very sketchy electronics. And, <laughs> and then you had the surge, you know, multi multiple panels of surge and, and whatever else. Um, wow. Yeah, it was, it was a ordeal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because you know, I I know what it's like to gig with a band, but uh, you know, to do that, you know, it's it's much more complicated than what it, you know than how uh, I how I strip down my modules today. Uh -huh. You know, it's so it, it's you know it's big difference just in the technologies though, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I had studied as I said under Ivan Trepnin, and you know, he came from a a very performance-oriented tradition. All of his works for electronics and, and generally traditional instruments are all um, shocking. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I studied with Yvonne Trepnin, who came from a very uh, performative tradition, and all his works for electronics and mostly traditional instruments um, were all written to be played live. And um, and so that's the tradition under which I studied. Um, we did make tape pieces in that electronic music studio, but we mostly, you know, tried to figure out how we could do things so that we could perform them. Um, because that's, um, it's not, a, I find it a very compelling aspect of music that, um, that perf right, music performed and appreciated or listened to live is, is a different context than making music that is recorded and then listened to off a recording. Um, you know, we can talk about um, the relationship, you know, the, the, the live interplay between the performer and the audience. Um, but even in cases where, you know, you're on a big stage and far from the audience, you can't really interact that much with them, uh, especially if you have a ton of electronics that are like super delicate and you're terrified you're gonna fall apart at any moment. <laughs> um, The context that the listener is in and how they are approaching the music and the context in which the musician is in is just deeply different than than in a studio and recording setting. And I, I think it produces a different style of music. It's a different musical thing. And that's a thing I really like. I like, I like being on either side of that. <laughs> so, I don't know. Would, so with uh, performing back then to compared to now, what's the time period of what we, what were you doing in between like say like when I when I met you and you and you and you went and did this tour? Oh. Um, okay, so there's a there's a long period in between in which I actually didn't make very much music at all. Um, uh, part of it's because I, I came to Silicon Valley and I actually started working in digital audio professionally not i mean on the on the I, I worked at apple i worked on the sound systems in in early macintosh computers and um you know i spent my whole day doing digital audio engineering and kind of <laughs> was done with it so I, I i took up conga drumming of all things <laughs> and i didn't really make many much electronic music for many many like a, a good 15 years um 
but then I came back to it. Um, and, um, you know, there's a whole period in electronic music where, you know, the instruments that are primarily available are generally very geared towards keyboard players. And yes. I'm not a keyboard player. I'm not a keyboardist at all. Uh, my two years of piano as a 10 year old just never stuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's um, really only, I don't know, you could probably say, I mean, there's smatterings of it earlier, but the last 15, 20 years have a, have seen a big renaissance or increase in musical device, electronic musical devices with other modes of interaction and expression. Uh, and I don't mean just like MIDI controllers with, you know, funny controls, um, you know, things like, you know, Electron and the notion we, we have a, a sort of more broad range of uh, what you might call uh, desktop mo synthesizer module units. Um, we have, I mean, now I, I can get a Raspberry Pi that can do far more live audio processing than, you know, than the entire Stanford computer music facility had back in the 80s. I mean, it's, so the ability to do the kind of work that I do, but do it now with both more commercially available instruments or, uh, and, um, and to do do it with easily available tools is is completely changed. And so, when I met you, I'd come back to electronic music to find that like, wow, the stuff I had only dreamed of being able to do or, to, or had to cobble together hard was now, like, available. Um, yeah. You know, and and so uh, so in fact, you know, my my normal rig that I play is I'm, I'm uh, my primary live performance instrument these days is an Electron Digitoct. Uh, sampling percussion synthesizer, and then I run that through a Raspberry Pi uh, with a Pi Sound audio card, and I do a huge amount of processing of the audio in Super Collider, all in software. Um, but I do that all live, <laughs> and I now have easily available like MIDI control surfaces that I can pipe into that to control that. And so, I don't know that my my rig is is really that much smaller in terms of number of boxes and things I have to plug together, <laughs> but I have much more power at my hands now than I had before. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's definitely a you know big comparison compared to probably what you know the equipment you were using, you know, back when you were working right. with Serge, compared to say last month when you played at Peaked and you just have a table with you know a few electronic pieces you uh, know chained together. All right. Um, it's I'm just trying to think of how to characterize the difference. I mean, it's kind of funny because when we played it peaked, right? Lachlan basically was performing, you know, the way I used to perform. You know, he had you know about four racks worth of analog modular equipment. Yeah. Uh, well, for one of the two pieces, and and like he spent his entire time just you know twiddling knobs and patch cables, um, whereas I I sort of went in the other direction. Um, there is, you know, back back in the eighties. You had a you had had basically had to build everything up from scratch yourself because there there just really wasn't that much available mm -hmm. out there and so now we have this great ability that we can we can lean on or we can we can grow musically on top of um, you know great instrument makers um, you know the, the relationship between the luthier and the performer is you know <laughs> is uh, it's always there and it's it's um, we get great power now, right? So I can, I can get something like a Digitact, which is allowing me to do the kind of sample manipulation that was, even in the 90s when I had a Roland sampler I was trying to do stuff with, it was like, it was just so much harder to do what I can do 
on that device now. It's just the device has more power and you know, you, you stand on the shoulders of people who put in all that time and effort to make that thing usable, which is which is great, you know. You stand on the shoulders of any instrument maker. Yes. Um so yeah. <laughs> no, that's a great comparison because, you know, you know, for example, I've got a Korg Triton for that I bought in two thousand uh. and it takes floppies. <laughs> Right. I'm not taking that anywhere. Right. <laughs> it, it lives in the studio. It doesn't go anywhere. Right. You know, it's certainly not portable like a DigiTech. Right. Yeah. So um, for me, I really like the portability. You've probably heard me because I say it way too much. You know, I sort of have this rule that that if I'm performing live, I have to be able to get all the equipment from the from the car to the venue in one trip. Yes. Um, and so far, I'm crossing my fingers here. Like I've been able to do that. Yes. Uh, so that's. Um, and um, part of that is just a really good constraint. Um, it's really tempting to buy every box out there, and it's really tempting to put them all on the table, and it's really tempting to turn them all on. And I see people do that, and it's all fine, all good. Like, there's nothing wrong. If that's what floats your boat, go for it. Um, but I like being able to dive deeply into the devices that I choose to play. And if I have too many things out there, um, I find if I have too many boxes, I put each box to, to one obvious purpose and then I let it do its thing, obviously, and then I move on to the other box. And it can be all good, but I I find for me, I, I it means I tend to, okay, well, now I have 12 things all doing their obvious. Oh, yeah, that thing's really good at doing, like, you know, your basic you know, kick, thap, kick, thap, kick, thap, whatever, you know, beat you've got going. So that's all it's doing because I've got 12 other boxes to work with, you know. Um, whereas if I restrict myself down really strong, that, that really allows me to to focus on the instrument, in that one instrument. So I typically these days play with only one or two audio sources at all. Uh, usually the Digitoct and sometimes I, I use a MicroMonsta sometimes and sometimes I use Innovation Circuit just to have a a few extra voices and some tonal voices. Um, Watching you perform live is really fun. Oh, yay! <laughs> so you know, because it's great because you're you're where I want to be musically because uh-huh. I, I love that you have everything stripped down to minimized amount of setup. Uh-huh. You've got, you know, the D-Tact, you've got the Novation, you've got the, um, what is it, the Jambi? Uh, John Bay. The John Bay, yeah. you know, playing the Tycho drum set right. in there, which you do live, and, and you're on point with your time. It's great. <laughs> and I really appreciate it and enjoy seeing that setup because mm-hmm. that's something that I aspire to with the things that I'm doing, which is obviously different because I'm using different equipment. I'm going with the whole Eurorack style. Uh. But I'm trying to break it down to the point where I can throw everything into a backpack yeah. or a small portable suitcase and not have to carry around, lug around, any more equipment than that right uh take a bus to the show is my is my plan right so and i and i can't bring any everything on the bus right no you gotta you have to have it very very clear i i i think the act of performing live is you know we we focus and probably mostly and rightly so on you know the actual musical performance and musical performance but I like to think that there are all these other aspects of it, which must also are, are part of what makes the whole happen. And that includes things like, like I do, I practice tearing down and setting up my equipment 
I actually practice it with a timer. Wow. Um, <laughs> my goal is always to have the gig, you know, the rig up and up and going within 15 minutes of, of opening the, the bag. Um, and Do you drama class at some point in time? I didn't actually take drama <laughs> classes. Like drama class. uh, but but there's this um, sense of like it's worth. It's just as much, especially if you're an electronic musician, where so much about electronic music is about connections and interactions between part pieces and understanding the flow of your equipment. Right? It's it's not, you know. It, you know, if, if you own a if you own a cello, you you take the equipment out of its case, you know, and you you pay attention to the position of the bridge, and you make sure the strings are right, and you make sure there's enough rosin or on your bow, and things are tight and where you want them. But you know, you pay attention to the equipment. But that's all the equipment you have to pay attention to. You're done. Now it's all music. We we play electronics, right? Whether it's Eurorack or synthesizers or whatever it is, there's like you know 415 more things you have to you know have to all be right for it to all happen. Yes. I don't think I'm actually exaggerating. I mean, it's really like, you know, amazing no, you really number are. of settings and all. And so in the same way that you have to be able to pull your cello out and get it into performance, you got to be able to do that with your equipment too. So I, I feel it's it's really, it, it behooves you to really deeply understand your equipment, not, you know, it's your instrument. You got to understand its care and feeding and it's how you put it together. You can't just like, I don't know, I just put it out. Like, no, you got to know it. So like, you know, I carefully like, like down to like, okay, I have like the purple bag has all the equipment, has all the cables that go on the table. And then like the other bag has the cables that like go from the equipment out to the house. You know, <laughs> everything is just carefully sorted. It's all in order so that I can, I can bring it all together and bring it all back out. Yeah, you pretty much already set up. You've got like, sounds like you've got like color coordinated bags of what goes into what bag so that you when you're ready to go play a show, you know where things are supposed to go. Yeah, everything has a spot. So in, in my cases, like everything has a particular spot where it goes. Um, it's also really good. Uh, you know, we, we play a lot of these uh, in San Francisco. We're, we're blessed. We have, you know, two monthly group shows. And yes. if you play at them, they're they're wonderful. But, you know, when it comes time to clean up your equipment, there's like seven or, you know, sometimes as many as 10 other musicians busy trying to clean up their electronic equipment yes. at the same time <laughs> so like knowing where all your equipment goes and it goes back in this bag in the exact same way every time like or you know you practiced it you know what's there make sure you don't leave anything <laughs> yes and i've gotten it so for example i've gotten into the habit of of uh putting orange uh uh orange tape around all of my cables yeah. so that I don't get them lost, right. so they don't get lost, or no one takes them accidentally because they're all everyone's cords are black. <laughs> right. It's like this is really confusing. Yeah. So I was like, I'm always happy to get a gear that is not black, right. just because one, it'll be identifiable, and I can probably see it. Actually. <laughs> yeah. As much as black is a great color, yes. but it's so much easier to see it when it's not. Yeah, I have identifying tags on all my cables and all my <laughs> stuff. Yeah, and I really appreciate that you mentioned that. Understanding your equipment is extremely vital and key to playing a live show. You know, similar to you know understanding your cello and your positions. Yeah. That you know you the better you understand your your equipment, that synthesizer, that that digital interface, the better your performance is going to be because you already know it. You know, you already have a premeditative idea of how it's supposed to work right. and how it's supposed to flow. So your performance will come out better that way. Yeah. I also think it's, um, I guess I have two thoughts about that. One is uh, 
you need to be not in a panicked headspace over your equipment, over your instrument. Your yeah. instrument has to be like not the worry, <laughs> right? So you got to make sure that's like, yep, I just do what I do and it, it'll be there and it'll, it does what it does and it works, you know, and I know all the parts and I know where they all go. And so part of it is to make sure that like that's not, you know, you're not fretting because I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be anxious over the, whether or not the equipment's working. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that you, it's inevitable that the equipment won't work at some point. It's just, it's 100% inevitable. Um, when I was studying music with Yvonne uh, back in the 80s, um, I had this, uh, I, I wrote this first piece I'd ever written for multiple instrumentalists besides myself. And so we had four of us up on stage and the three other players were all playing electric pianos and I was processing them all digitally and, and through the surge and um, in really janky 8-bit format on a computer as well. It was... Uh, serious distortion time um and we had a performance and what i didn't find out until so we we had uh we had a, a sound check and it was fine and then it was our time to go up and we went up and what i hadn't anticipated was the previous act had decided that the that there were too many stage monitors for them i don't know how you decide there are too many stage monitors and so they unplugged like almost all the stage monitors oh, no. like they didn't ask the how I, I don't know i don't know how it happened but that's what happened and so we got up there and there was just no feedback and since my other people were playing electric pianos like it's not like they can hear the instrument right so they could barely hear each other because we could only hear each other out of the house which is really hard and so you know the thing just fell to pieces i mean it was just it was a disaster you know <laughs> but you know we trucked on because you have to because you're on stage in front of a bunch of people yeah and i i, I came off that concert and uh, Yvonne, my my mentor, came up and he's like, "Well, you're a real musician now, Mark." <laughs> like <laughs> he's like, he's like, "Don't worry, it happens." Yeah. Um, and it does. And and part of knowing your equipment and your instrument um, is knowing how to get through those moments live without panicking. You know, I mean, it happens. You know, people guitarists break a string you know and yeah. keep going because you're in the middle of the song right yes. you, know, you don't just stop like oops sorry <laughs> i don't know what to do now <laughs> um i was on tour as you said i just got back from my first tour on the east coast um and uh in uh i guess it was the the in the first in the first show um i was playing a piece and there there's a there's a part where i'm supposed to bring in a particular instrument and i went to play it and it just like wasn't there like the sound did not come out like i hit the trigger and nothing yeah. i'm like okay time to work like it's just like okay not going to have that piece of you know that part of this piece is not going to be there so I'll just work away way around it live um it was fine I, I felt um surprisingly calm about having that happen i'm, I'm sure good 10 years ago i would have been panicked now i'm like <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so Never did figure out why it didn't play. It played the next night, no problem. <laughs> I don't know, man. The volume somewhere was set to zero, and you know, live, I didn't have time to. Mm. The obvious one didn't fix it, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those things get annoying, but um, but and as you've mentioned before, is that you do a lot of improv mm -hmm. with with uh, your performances. Yes. So with that in mind, you were probably able to easily decide on where else to go with that one trigger of, of a sample doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, so improv is relatively new to me, although the pieces I did back 
in the eighties were, were all live performance. No, almost nothing was improv. It was all written out. Um, even if it was loosely written out, I still wouldn't have called it improv the way I do now. Um, in the last couple of years, I've gotten involved in doing improv uh, a lot, a tremendous amount. And what I like about it is uh, there's this, improv is more about listening than about playing. You know, it's, it's about really hearing how the music is evolving live and having that sensibility um, really allows you to negotiate these <laughs> situations because like yes. you're actually listening to the music you're creating you're not just you know uh, not that anyone plays by rote but you know um, you have to be so actively engaged in, in the act of listening to what you're bit what you're creating uh, not just playing it and so that yeah it really does allow you to sort of have that skill of thinking about like okay that sound is in there what do I what do I put in its place do I move something up or where am I going to go next with your tour, was it so? Uh, mm. Tell me about the purpose of it, and was it something that helped uh, gain an audience and, and listeners? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um, the well, the purpose, I guess, for me, it's it's the first time I've ever done a tour as a musician. I'd performed live before, um, both in the in the more distant past and more recent past. Um, but I had never really done a tour, you know, a series of concerts, you know, one bang, 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 right after another. We did six concerts in nine days. Um, and um, I guess for me, I I wanted, I felt like it was my learning tour. I wanted to, I wanted to figure out how to do this and, and, and push myself to be able to perform on that kind of schedule. Um, I really, my greatest joy in music now is is really about performing live. That's what I really want to do most. Um, you know, the recorded and released stuff are, are the artifacts of live performance for the most part. Right. Um, and so I wanted to sort of, you know, explore and push. Can I do this live? Can I really pull off an entire hour long set, you know, nonstop? Can I can I fill can I fill an audience's ears effectively for an hour? that way live. Um, so that was my aim in, in doing it was basically to like, okay, try this. <laughs> Can I make this work? Can I figure out how to make it work? Um, we did, we played six concerts in nine days. Uh, we played um, six pieces for a set that lasted, depending on the venue, between an hour to an hour and 20 minutes, depending on what the venue wanted or had. Uh, we played, uh, Let's see, I guess three of the pieces were composed in the sense that we knew what we were gonna do and we knew where the music was supposed to go. All of them had some amount of improvisation elements in them, but they were composed. And then three of the pieces were very loosely structured in the grand plan and were completely improv improvised live. Uh, were you with a, a group of other musicians or were you were play, were playing with different people throughout every venue? Um, so for the concerts, um, I did with my really great friend, Paul Booser, who uh, was actually at the founding of Electric Kitchen when it was when it was a sort of tight local group. Um, he now lives in Boston. So um, because I was on the East Coast, that gave us the opportunity for him to join me for, he could make four of the concerts. So four of them were structured around, uh, was Paul and I playing together which is nice. And then two of the six concerts were myself solo. So I, I played a slightly different set list for those. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, very good. 
Yeah, because I've never, I've never done it. I've never gone on tour before, so it's it, it's still a new concept to yeah. me. Even though I've, I've I know I've had many friends in different bands uh-huh. who have done the, you know done tours things right. like that, and usually they're you know, usually going with a group of other you know musicians things like that. Right. So it's always an interesting perspective to hear something you know unique with what you did, which was basically just hit the road with a sit, set of uh, <laughs> you know six concerts <laughs> set up. Now, did you set those concerts up um, ahead of time? The, with the the uh, the venues. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. I I I booked the whole tour myself, which is kind of crazy. I understand, but <laughs> um, it's a lot of work. It was a lot of work. Um, I'm sure the next time I do it, it'll be you know a lot easier. The first time was a lot of work because it's just a lot of coordination. Um, and you know I booked it like four months in advance of the tour, or maybe three. Yeah, three to four months out is what it took to be able to get it all to work and come together. Um. Yeah, so I, I booked it and sort of set up the dates and, uh, you know, I reached out to venues and got venues who agreed to book me. Um, some of the shows were uh, solo. I was it. You know, I was the bill. Uh, most of them had other acts and we, um, I worked with the venues to find appropriate opening acts for each show. So, um, and and uh, in one case, um, I went and found an opening act for two of the shows. Um, I found a local musician, Econaut, um, who lives in upstate New York, and he opened for us at two of the shows, which was nice because they were back to back night to night. And so That's we got nice. to sort of spend 48 hours uh, with him. Uh, he was, uh, it was a lot of fun. He, he opened with dub techno set and then we followed. And so that, that was kind of fun kind of touring together. That's nice. Yeah. Very cool. So, wow, that's really great. You were so you were able to book the shows of and you know with the venues and work with them on getting yeah. other acts to play with you. Yeah. Now, were there were did some venues turn you down? Oh well, I mean they don't turn you down like say no thank you. They just never write back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I sent out many more probes than than responses I got, but okay. it's okay. You know. No, no one wrote back to say, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get rejected. I just didn't get answers. <laughs> that would be weird for, for a venue to say yeah. that. No, thank you. <laughs> never never ask me again. <laughs> that would be weird. No, we don't have that. That's good. No, that's a great yeah. great experience. We it was. It. I, the, I am too, because uh, to my sort of somewhat, I don't know, surprise, it suited me really well. I really enjoyed it. I mean, like yeah. I really, those nine days were like this, sort of continuous haze of I am in performance mode you know you, you know even the two hour van drives from one you know from one city to the next yeah we're kind of this like okay we're in suspended animation between sets you know? <laughs> so uh no I really enjoyed it it was a it was a very good strong mental space to be in wow how did you pre- how did you uh get prepared for that mental space well for performance, I, I, you know, I did like the old joke says, practice, practice, practice. You know, that's that's what I did. It's just, uh, you know, probably for a month before the tour, I, I would, it, a little over a month before the tour, I sort of came up with the rough outline of the set and what it would be. And then, no, I played, I played the set five times a week, you know, in my studio. <laughs> from beginning to end in that was important to like do it as a you know don't stop in the middle because on right. stage you don't get a chance to stop in the middle right so no i i just a lot of practice um because paul was in boston 
which is kind of funny. I would like record some of my sessions and I would send them to him <laughs> so that he would have like backing tracks to try or backing parts to work with. And um, I showed up in Boston a couple days early uh, so that Paul and I would, and we spent two really intensive days, you know, rehearsing and finalizing how everything put fit together. So yeah, it's just doing it a lot. It was the basic way to get in the headspace. The headspace of like how to deal with the travel. Well, that was just, I had no way of preparing for that. Right. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, just practice, practice, practice. Yeah. yeah, that's all you really can do to get ready for a show. That way, you know that uh, right. how you how you're going to perform. Very good. What what uh, would you do? Say you say you're going to do a, a you know a, another tour next year. Mm-hmm. What would you diff- do differently? Um. Well. I'd like to understand how to promote things better. I, I just didn't do as good a job as I think one could be done, um, but maybe the right answer is I need to have someone else help me do that job. <laughs> so I think that's one thing I would do differently. Um, I would, I, I'm not afraid to do a little longer of a tour. I mean, a six show tour is not particularly long for most band tours. I mean, it's not bad, but it's, um, so I, I realize now that I can do it, like, okay, like I can, I can pull off a tour. So um, if you're going to do all that work and get it going, then it might as well be, you know, I, I'd love to do, you know, a 10 or 12 concert tour. Yeah. Um, you know, next, next spring or, yeah, I don't know, maybe winter. Um, so I would do that. Um, what else would I do? I don't know. I really, I enjoyed the alternative venues that, that I, I pick so some of the venues were like standard music clubs but like one venue was a modern dance studio hmm. and that was an awesome it was an, just an awesome space and a great vibe and wonderful people to work with and that was so enjoyable um and another place was just it was like the, the small city's local like cool art cafe and it was just again it was just a wonderful space and a wonderful vibe and and playing in these kind of slightly alternative music environments was just re- really really nice suited me really well I'd, hmm. I'd love to do more of those Nice. Yeah. So. Well, that's great to hear that you you were doing you know kind of you know the, the cafe venues here and there as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So I did uh, two cafe. Yeah, so two art galleries. Well, one was an art gallery cafe. One was an art gallery. One was a dance studio. Two of them were standard like you know music music halls. I guess, and then the third one, the the well, I guess the sixth one counting is was a. It's actually a like nightclub in Montreal. Uh, hmm. That was a little bit different because we were um, that concert was actually a showcase of a bunch of musicians um, from all over coming together. It was like I think we had nine electronic musicians, and we put on kind of a showcase evening for that, for which I did a sort of extended set. Um, there's a there's a composers group that you may know of called the, the Disquiet Junto. I don't know them. Okay. So Disquiet um, Yunto is a sort of experimental group. Or every Thursday, a prompt goes out, and the prompts are usually very abstract. You know, oh. and they're like, like this week's prompt was, um, hum some music, hum some original music, record it, and then make a piece of music out of it. <laughs> and the prompts go out on Thursday, and your deadline, which I'm putting in air quotes here, um, is Monday. 
And uh, it's not a contest and there's no voting, uh, but people, if you choose to participate that week, you do your thing and you put your, you know, the tracks are usually two to five minutes long uh, and you put them up on a common site. And then we all listen to each other's tracks and, you know, say, oh, that's cool. Or can you tell me more about this? Um, And it's just really, really interesting to hear what a whole bunch of, and there's, you know, it's got a worldwide participation. Um, Wow. So uh, it's run by uh, Mark Weidenbaum out of San Francisco, actually. He's a <laughs> local guy who's a wonderful music reporter and writer and, and educator. Um, anyway, so a group of the whole tour started because um, a group of us from that decided that we wanted to actually get together in person because we only known each other online through our music submissions. So uh, we decided to get together in Montreal. So I think there were about 10 of us who flew into Montreal. Wow and met there and then we put on a concert there so tell me about that show was that something a little bit more unique with the uh the material that you guys were playing well that show that that concert was definitely very varied i mean you know there was um because there was a variety of different styles there was my music and you know some there was these uh, guys who did this sort of combined ableton live and euro rack duets um, there's some straight Eurorack. There was two guys who did Eurorack sets, but they were very, very different in style. You know, one was very rhythmic and one more atmospheric. I mean, so it was a variety of different styles because it was a variety of different composers. It's not a, the group isn't based on a single genre. So, cool. or style. So that, that was, um, and that was more of a, that was more of a concert for you know for performer you know it was a musician's concert right you yes know, the audience was just other musicians yeah. you know it's just kind of a different thing that sounds very familiar actually <laughs> <laughs> well it is you know um as i said we have these wonderful venues in san francisco and they're uh, these monthly events and they're and they're great and they um i guess this leads me back to thinking about context of music um when you think about the context in which your music will be heard to me that that there's a really that influences what you choose to create musically um i don't see that as a problem i think some people think that's is but it's not and so i I think about like when i was thinking about the tour and putting together the set list that i was going to play you know okay well what am i going to play to a bunch of people who aren't musicians to people who probably aren't heavy electronic music listeners you know it's going to be more people with a more sort of experimental arts appreciation background not necessarily musicians so you think about gearing music that will be receivable in that context um you know uh whereas if you know you're playing to a bunch of other electronic musicians you can do different things you know and that's fine it's just they're they're different it's like, are you writing music to be played, you know, in the background as someone walks around? Is it ambient? Is it part of a gallery show? Is it, or, you know, or all the house lights going to be down and the house is like very hush in the spotlight on you. It's a different music, you know, it's a, you know, yeah. are you playing music, which is going to be, a, you know, in a club full of, you know, big thumpy bass and people dancing constantly. You, you're going to write different music for those different contexts. That's right. And so um, I think about that. That's um I brought you some pieces of music, as you know, and I think one of the things that illustrates is those those musics are kind of for very, they come from different contexts, like they're written with different contexts in mind. So tell me about these tracks that you sent me. Uh, four, four, uh, was it Coil Thump? <laughs> Coil Thump, uh, Mechanism. Mechanism. And and then the, a, uh, 
well, and then the other thing. Um, so each of these, um, these are all things I've done in the last eight months or so, just to sort of give representative of the kind of stuff I've been working on. So 4-4, four, 4x4 four, four four came out of one of these Disquiet Yunto prompts um, and um, is, um, it's an algorithmic piece of music in the sense that uh, I came up with an algorithm or a method by which uh, chord progressions are evolved and um, a particular way to do that and then uh, took that and applied it to a bunch of chords and that's what's there and it's basically written out it's um, the track you hear is just uh, produced in Ableton Live with um, some sampled and synthesized instruments but it could really actually be performed on actually I'd love to have it performed on uh, probably vibraphone and, and organ hmm. which is sort of an interesting combination it would be three uh, four or four vibraphones and an organ would be <laughs> very interesting uh, instrumentation um, and so that's an example of actually written out music I mean it you know sort of composed note by note yeah music um, it involves an algorithmic process you know so I came up with this sort of um, method by which I sort of okay like once I pick the chords like how do I get them to do the thing that happens there um, it's uh, in some senses it's a sketch um, it's got four by four is what two minutes long or something it's relatively short um, I can easily envision it or I, I'm thinking it would make a great first section out of maybe a three movement work or a four movement work so it might get expanded in the future but that's an example of a really sort of composed uh, piece yeah and that and thanks again for sending those because I loved hearing it that and I got to hear them right before well you know at least the first three I, I was able to listen to before he came by today mm -hmm. and you know and I'm going to put them on the end of this podcast oh, so everyone gets mm -hmm. to hear about what we're talking right. about which I think is really fascinating and fun and really fun for the audience and I, I'm enjoying these tracks as uh, very much so right. you know I you know I'm enjoying the melody very much and the beat of 4-4 four, four. it's 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 uh you know, it's easily easily accessible. It's probably the only it's the only one of the set that really focuses on uh, more traditional melodic and harmonic concepts, um, which is not usually the way I work. Um, you know, I I'm attracted to electronic music because I am attracted to the timbral possibility. Um, you know, I'm and I think that to me, if you're going to work in electronics one of the reasons to work with electronics and electronic music is to explore the space of sounds of, of timbres um, and that your music and that the music can explore that as a compositional element which is different than exploring it you know well if you instrument your piece for rock band you've got you know four different timbres and you've got the drums and the bass and the guitar and maybe the distorted guitar and the keys and which are doing a hammond b3 and there's your sonic palette you know that's it timbrally and so everything is more rhythm and rhythm and harmony um, anyway, in this case, in 4x4, where I'm not really exploring timbre, right, it really could be played on traditional instruments. It's not really important that other than one is sustained and one is not, it could be played on things. What I am playing with is exploring um, how you algorithmically, so rather than just, you know, compose a beautiful figure, I'm looking at how can I explore this sort of process by which music you can choose notes so the notes are all cho the notes and the timing and the and the sequencing is all 
based on this sort of process. And so really the music is about a process, which you can hear as it, as it goes through. Um, the next piece, I think, in, well, another uh, the second piece is mechanism. Um, that grew out of, uh, there was actually a, a, an Ableton <laughs> challenge, which they put out a small piece of um, sonic material, I guess I would call it, and asked people to, using that as the ba as the primary basis of the music, you know, cut that piece of music or those sounds up and turn them into something. And um, so mechanism is... Um, it's very much like old music concrete or the old tape work. It's a lot about very careful splicing. So there's like hundreds of splices in that. It's only 90 seconds long. <laughs> and there's like, there's easily a couple hundred splices of oh, wow. different sounds going on in there, all carefully cut together. Um, and it doesn't sound anything like the original source material. I mean, you can hear the echoes of it, but. Um, and my aim there, uh, that really is about listening to Tomber uh, because I take this source material and and, ex and exploit what each fragment of this original recording, which is noisy and full of different noises and stuff, you know, trying to find each element and like listen to its Tomber. How does it sound and what musically role does that play? And then assembling those pieces together. And so uh, what you hear there is this sort of very cinematic cascade of different kinds of sounds and how they play off against each other and, and, and play back and forth between each other. Um, so that piece is very much about uh, timbral com composition, you know, composing wow. the timbre more than anything else. I mean, the, the melodic line in it is not particularly complex or <laughs> inspiring, it just right. is. <laughs> yeah, that's very nice. It, it sounds like something I would probably enjoy just because I've, I've, I've created tracks where I've just taken sound bites uh mm -hmm. you know taking samples from like a movie clip or something like that sampled it mm -hmm. down until it becomes just a beat just right. from you know the voice and right. throwing it into some reverb so it actually has you know a bit more range than just mm -hmm. you know a, a, a short short decay All right that's really nice now and uh, one of the other pieces you, you've sent me was a uh, coil thump. Coil thump. So coil thump is probably much more representative of the kind of stuff that I, I do live. Um, it's a little more traditionally rhythmic. It's a basic 4-4 thumper, uh, hence its name. Um, it is using a whole pile of samples of other things, which is um, a lot of, again, what I do because I like exploring timbre is I love to take samples of things and carefully cut them and then use them in this case in a digitoct uh, sequencer or a drum sampling device and then i can play them live as rhythms or as rhythmic music um, which i really really enjoy um, in this particular case most of those samples came from a recording of a tesla coil <laughs> so they're they're extremely noisy wow <laughs> um, but everything in it except for the there's a bass drum which is a recording of a different drum but everything else in it comes from a Tesla coil um, and uh, carefully cut, spliced, edited, filtered, reverbed, manipulated, mangled. Um, coil thump, the piece that you hear is a is a one take live performance. That's what you, what you hear is exactly how I played it out. It's just a straight there. And so that's, that's the kind of stuff I, I tend to muck around with and do live. Um, and it's all on a single instrument. 
Um, and it's fun. You know, I enjoy yeah. funness and I enjoy a little bit of, you know, theatrical amusement. <laughs> so, yeah, I really enjoyed it myself. Yeah. Um, the last thing I sent you, which I don't, I don't know that you've gotten through because it's a little bit longer. Uh, halfway through. Halfway through, okay. Is um, So that is actually a really early rough cut. So um, you guys are all getting a special treat here on the podcast um, of one of the performances from the tour. So those have not been released yet, um, but the the we recorded everything on tour. So I have six renditions of almost every piece, you know, and <laughs> and carefully trying to pull together a, a a tour album out of the thing by picking the best oh, cool. parts. Um, this is um, the tour, the last piece in in the evening on tour was a thing that I called uh, the infinite set, which is thinking about. Uh, how to take improv in a longer view. So the infinite set is an improv piece where every time I perform it, I start with where the settings were and what music I was playing the last time I performed, when I ended it the last time. And so there's an album out which has the first four live performances and they, they thread together. Each one starts where the last one ended. Um, in this tour, we took it up again and so the six perform concerts on the tour had the next six segments of the infinite set. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, so four of them did because we did it four times. Um, this is a recording of one of those. And so it's an open improv piece in the sense that we did not have a structure or a place to go. We just knew where we were starting from, which is we were starting from where we ended the previous night's performance. <laughs> and so we picked that up and took it forward. Um, the track features um, really wonderful playing by Paul uh, uh, on keyboards and a lot of the tonality and feeling of the piece comes from his performance and his improv, which you know, I give him a lot of credit. It's, it's A lot of it is him in that track. Um, but I think the track also expresses a lot uh, when I do improv and play percussion with someone else, how I view that, you know, I, percussion forms a, a a grid or a framework on which everything else is hung but I like that framework to be um, if you listen to just the percussion part of that piece you'll hear it very slowly over the 10 minute or I guess it's about eight and a half nine minutes long uh, shifting hmm. around so rather than like a traditional percussion part in a most songs where you, you you play 16 bars and then there's like a hard break and the hats drop out and you know things come in and out on hard boundaries this is more much more about shifting and evolving which is a lot how i like to do improv with people so the you know you might be listening to it and for three minutes you might not think the percussion has changed but if you skip back three minutes you're like oh it's it's different <laughs> um so and a lot of it's about the live interplay between the two of us and listening carefully it's a lot of careful listening in in what makes that track work that's excellent. So, Very cool. Yeah. Well, Mark, I think about a question today. Oh. Is there anything else that we uh, that I I missed today? Anything else you missed? Uh, Do you want to talk no. about Res Freak for a minute? I'm sorry. Do you want to talk about resonant frequencies for a minute? Oh, I mean, sure. I mean, we. Uh, so, uh, I mentioned before that there were there were several. Oh, there's two monthly events. Uh, one of them is Resonant Frequencies, which takes place in Oakland. And um, it's run by a wonderful guy named Kevin, uh, who has um, 
started this because as he said like he wanted to be you know he wanted to create the scene that he wanted there to be and it's this um what i love about resonant frequencies is that it's focused entirely on as on live performed electronics but it has no strictures on genre beyond that and so as a showcase we're not a showcase as a as a as a venue as a as a monthly event you get to hear everything from like you know drone music to noise music to you know hard techno to you know sort of environmental you know ambient stuff it's great it just goes all over the map um and allows uh it really creates an environment for people or a, a, a community in which people doing live electronic work can can work and grow together it's yeah. great to hear each other it's great to learn from each other it's great to um yeah, I think a lot of us in the community around here now think about things like, oh, like, like I'm gonna I'm gonna workshop this at resident frequencies, <laughs> like, like oh. So I actually I did that for this tour. There's one of the pieces I played is this piece called uh, Tycho Space, and um, which uses these giant sampled Tycho drums that I play, and um, yeah. But I like I kind of put it together, and then I was like, okay, I'm gonna go take it to resident frequencies, and I'll perform it there, and <laughs> hear hear how it felt to play it, and hear how the audience worked. So. You're right. It's uh, it resonant frequencies is one of those places where you're going to hear almost anything. Yeah. And there's you know the boundaries are lim are limitless, right. and the of and the variety of creativity of the people coming there is yeah. is boundless. Uh, a couple earlier this year, a couple months ago now, a friend of mine, Tobias, went out went mm. over and he and he performed. I was just an audience member that night, and his performance was he told everybody to take out their cell phones. <laughs> Were you here for that one? I was there for that one, and, yeah. Right? Wasn't that great? The cell phone performance, right. The cell phone performance. Uh -huh. And everything you heard was on your own uh, cell, cell phone. phone. Right. And it was just like different noises from the website you went to. Right. And the whole performance was from everybody's cell phone. And yeah. I thought it was a fun, unique thing that he did that you know was working on everyone's cell phone in the mm -hmm. room at the same time. Right. So, yeah, I think it's just a, it's a, it, it's a tremendous blessing. It's a great thing that we have. Um, it is, and I really one of the things I I really enjoy about resonant frequencies are the video projections that done by well, Bill Trotsky and uh, Kit Young and and the other you know other people. Yeah, right. As if the music were not enough, right? There's this amazing live live electronic visual stuff going yeah, on. What they do in there is incredible. Yeah, it's beautiful. So um, it's great. I've brought friends to come to it to come sit through it, uh, which is really nice. It's uh, it's very open. It's very, it's free. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. No, so it's, it's a great thing. It really is. Um, it's 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 very unique. Uh, yeah. Kevin has done a very good job of creating the, the scene that he wanted. Yep. And it's and we're all and I think we're all very thankful for yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Cool. I think, uh, Mark. I think we've uh, great. Well, thanks for having me. It's been lovely talking with you. <laughs> you too, Mark. Thank you so much.